John chapter 20. Just a couple chapters after Chris's, Chris's scripture reading. John chapter 20. And we're going to read the first 18 verses together, okay? You doing good? Nice to see your smiles this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have, ta- they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, for that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back, home, back to their homes. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body, had, where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, for I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away... Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said that he had said these things to her. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. Lord, we just pray that you would speak the deep secret parts of us, Lord, that part of us that desperately needs to hear the gospel this morning of the resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would make sense of this for us, Lord, that we would walk out that door this afternoon with a better understanding, a different person, Lord. Bless this time in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This passage is showing us, this passage is showing us that the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus is three things. It's three things. It's intensely rational, rational, it's merciful, and it's personal. It's rational. The teaching of the resurrection is rational. It's merciful. And this passage tells us that it is personal. 
And I want to look at these three things together with you this morning as we look at the wonder of what Resurrection Day is. Number one, rational. Mary goes to the tomb, okay, and she finds that Jesus' body is gone. Imagine the shock. She runs back and tells Peter and John and the other apostles, and they run to the tomb. We're told that John, when he gets there first, because he's a bit of a faster runner than Peter, maybe he was a more of a fit guy or a smaller guy. Maybe Peter was a bigger guy. I don't know. He bends over and looks into the, tr- into the tomb and sees the strips of linen lying there, but he doesn't go in. Okay. Peter gets there, comes along behind him, goes right into the tomb. And it says that he saw the strips of, li- of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus. And the head cloth was still lying in its place, folded, separated from the linen. The text here, the original text in the Greek here, does not use, when, when, when Peter is looking and John is looking, the Greek word that's being used here is not the word that we would find for glance, just to glance at something, to see something. That, that Greek word is blepo. But the writer here uses, John uses, a different word, and it's a word that we get our word theorize, theorize from, to theorize something. And what this means is this, it's a word that means to observe intensely, looking for some kind of explanation. Imagine that. These guys, can you picture the scene? Two men, so close, and then Mary outside the tomb. Two men in the tomb, trying to wrap their mind about around what has just happened, and where is the body of Jesus this is unbelievable because they're probably thinking, I can just imagine what they're thinking. Maybe, maybe they came, maybe some grave robbers came and, and took the body. But that couldn't be because if they took the body, then why would they take the time to, to separate the head and the, 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 head, the face cloth and the linen that was around the body and take the time to fold it? Uh, maybe the Romans came. But if the Romans came, why would they leave the, why would they leave the linen and the clothing there? Maybe some other disciples came, but why would they leave that behind? Because the spices and the clothing, why would they take a naked body out of the tomb? It just none of it made any sense. And you know what they needed? They needed some evidence. They needed some evidence. They needed some information. They needed something that they could grapple onto. I think men, and we'll talk about women in a second, but men think this way. Men need something to grab onto. They need some type of, we need some type of a, a linear information that we can that we can think with that we can hold on to. I think many people think that as a Christian, Christians just believe in Jesus. They they just decide to believe. I'm just going to decide to believe. And that you don't need reason and that you don't need to think, but you just decide to believe. I decide to believe. But I would like to say that that is not necessarily true. In fact, if we're a Christian, if we are a Christian, if we have Christian faith that is not tested and that is not thought through, that is not pierced with God's thinking and reasoning and understanding, then what will happen is, is that it will fall apart in our times of disappointment, in a time of confusion like this moment, and times of tragedy. We need to think We need to think with God. We need evidence because otherwise, without it, it all falls apart. Think of the situation here. Men, these men are, and as Chris was reading the scriptures and as he was speaking, I was thinking about this. And 
We were here Friday night just celebrating the communion time of, of Jesus' crucifixion night. We were just thinking in that uh, contemplation, meditating. Saturday was a day of expectation. We were out doing outrage. And Sunday, today, is a day of just exclamation, amazement. We were thinking, we were thinking Friday about the disappointment and the, the, maybe even the sense of betrayal that here is Jesus. They followed all of these, these three years. They left everything and they followed this man. And now he was killed by the Romans, betrayed by the Jewish religious system. And just imagine the disciples. I don't know if you've had a loved one pass away, but there is that sense of closure when you are leaving the graveside. When, we, um, when my mom passed away and we buried her, I remember driving away and just it hitting me that this is closed. This is, she's gone. And, and, and it was just unbelievable. I could not even, I just, it was such an emotional experience for me. Yet the disciples go through that. They bury Jesus. He's buried. They're all back together uh, in their homes. And then Mary comes screaming, saying, the body's gone. Can you imagine the ripping and the tearing of that sense of closure in the matter? Can you imagine the, 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 the craziness, the thought, like, what chaotic situation is this? How worse can this, how much more worse can this be? I just want to say it's okay, and actually it's part of God's plan that we wrangle with unresolved, unresolved situations that we are faced with. We're, we wrangle with it. And this is something that God allows in our life so that what we believe and what we understand can be presented with evidence that's bigger than our understanding. Does this make sense? Yeah. This, that it's okay to have questions. It's okay to push back. It's okay to be like, you know, I need some time to kind of wrap my arms around, my, uh, wrap my brain around what's going on here. And this is what this Greek word means. It means to theorize. It means that they're in the tomb and they're just like scratching their heads. They're like, have you ever been in a situation where you're just so shocked and, and you're, just trying to, you're just trying to quickly, quickly think and you just kind of turn into, you just kind of like stare at the wall and you're just trying to think this through. This is a Greek word. They're looking. They're trying to figure it all out. And that's okay because God left evidence for these linear thinking men <laughs> to get it clear in their heads that the body wasn't stolen, the body wasn't removed, but it was intentionally gone, and whoever took it left the linen and the face cloth in order. Evidence. There's two bits of historical evidence that I think we can look at and think about that are right here. There's a lot of evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're interested in reading, and I know some of you are readers here, Get a book. It's called. It's Josh McDowell's book. It's an old book back in the day, uh, called "Evidence That Demands a Verdict." There's a newer book called "The Case for Christ" by Lee Strobel. If you can see the movie, it's out there. Watch the two films. It's amazing about the resurrection. There's a lot of evidence, but there's two pieces of evidence that I just want to look at here with you this morning. Mary Magdalene, number one. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. This is amazing herself. Is the first person here to see Jesus Christ. She was the first one. Disciples go home. They go to their house, it says. And Mary's there crying, weeping. Celsius, who was a Greek philosopher, in the second century, 
a little more than over 100 years after Christ, was one of the first great intellectual enemies of Christianity. He wrote a book that attacked Christianity, trying to show that it was rationally irresponsible to believe in Christianity. This is what he said about, this is what he said about the resurrection. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? <laughs> Please don't get offended. Please don't take that the wrong way. He said that. I didn't say that. Every single one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the original eyewitnesses are women, and therefore completely understandable that Celsius would write this book about this. Why would he do this? And why would this happen in, this such, a, in such a way? It's interestingly enough to note that today, the fact that all the original witnesses were women, it's completely understandable that he would write this. It's interesting to note that, that, that all the original, original witnesses were women, that this actually makes a case today for the resurrection of Christ. And how is that? Number one, if you're making up a story about if you want to start a new religion and you want to make some money off of it, you want to get some popularity, you want to get a following, you're not going to use something in that culture that's going to be a weak part of the chain in the get of the, getting it going in the foundation of it. And they're not going to use, because women at that day and still in the Middle East today, women are treated in a very unfair way. They could not even be a witness in a court case. And so if you are going to resurrect the hero that you're creating, you're not going to use someone who's not going to be a viable witness in that culture in that time. You're going to use something else. You're going to have him come out like Superman. You know, the, that latest film that came out by Marvel, uh, Superman is dead. You know, I don't know if you saw that. I saw that on the plane going to Europe. Superman is dead, right? He's, and he comes alive. And when he comes alive, he's actually not the same Superman. He's somebody else. And it's just so bizarre the way it happens. But he, he comes alive in the middle of New York City. I think it's like Central Park. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes out. And the way he comes out, the way he resurrects is in such a unique way. He appears first to a woman. Nobody in their natural right mind would do that naturally. They would not have, in that time, in that culture, have a woman as a viable witness. The second thing is, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Paul says that, and he's writing this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's, it's about 20 years after Christ. And Paul's writing to the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's saying, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses are still alive and in your, in, and in your midst. This is the second case that I think is such a powerful case in the resurrection of Christ. Is that, that as Paul's writing this scripture, he's saying... This chapter he's saying that to this day, there are people living their lives, going about their life that have seen Jesus Christ. I tried to picture it last night. Imagine we're going to be, you know, many of us are going to be getting together with family today, sitting down. And you know how those family conversations go, right? Some of them just repeat each other. They repeat. They, every, every year it's the same conversation, right? How many of you have those kind of conversations? And, you know, people tell, <laughs> people are pointing to people and they tell the same stories and it's like but we kind of go along with it because it's like well it's something to talk about and you know it's not maybe there's not a lot to talk about the food is great the weather's nice service was good and oh by the way remember uncle johnny's story you know and we all laugh about it this happened 
for the first several decades after Christ that people would gather together and they would talk about Auntie Mary's um, resurrection, um, resurrection sighting of Jesus Christ and how and how um, and how Uncle John, the, you know, our, or our great grandfather saw the resurrected Jesus Christ ascend into the heaven. This was happening. There were people that were still alive and they were talking about this. Why is it that Peter and John needed to think in order to believe in the resurrection? Why did Mary actually need to see Jesus? Why did Mary actually need to see Jesus? Why did Peter and John need some type of evidence? I think it's two reasons. Number one, messianic pretenders. And what these were, were these were men. There was one man in particular that I can think of. And his name was uh, Kobcha. And what he debar Bar Kobcha. And what this guy did was, is he began to, and there was already a sense in Israel that there's a Messiah coming. This Messiah was coming and he was going to lead and he was, gonna, and he was going to um, take Israel out of the oppression of the Roman government. This was a political, this was a social, and this was a religious expectation. Very much what we feel today in our, our political climate, a sense of a Messiah that would come and deliver. And yet every one of these messianic pretenders would come and then they would be killed by the Roman government. They'd get caught, they'd start a movement, they would get moving, there would be some order, and then they would get caught, and then they would be killed. They'd be killed by the Roman government. And then everybody understood at that moment that this was not the Messiah because he's dead. This Messiah is dead. The same thing happened with Jesus. And this is what they said about Jesus. This is what they said in the Sanhedrin. Others have come, and he too will die. And we, let us not make too much of this because it's going to end the same way. Some Jews believed in a resurrection. It was part of their Judaic faith. It was part of their Judaic um, thinking that there was going to be some kind of resurrection. But their understanding of resurrection, we see this in John 11, their understanding of the resurrection was at the end of time. At the end of the world, at the end of time, there's going to be a resurrection and, and um, those that died will be resurrected altogether and, and, and there would be that resurrection. But nobody had ever considered or ever thought that someone would be resurrected in the middle of their life or in the middle of time. This was a, this was a thought that was so outside of their system of, system of thinking that it blew them away. The, the resurrection blew people away. This is, why, this is why the resurrection, the story, the, the message of the resurrection is so powerful. It was the central message of the church for the first 100 years. It was, it, it was the center of the gospel that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. This was, this was the center of the gospel. And there were witnesses, up to 500 witnesses that saw this. And so the first, the first point I want to make this morning is that the resurrection is, the resurrection is intensely rational there is evidence. Number two, the second thing about the resurrection that we see is that it shows the mercy of God. It shows the mercy of God. Look at Jesus. And let's look here. At, let's look back at the scriptures. Remember how Jesus comes after Mary. She's standing there weeping. 
And as much as she's an admirable character, and as much as she's filled with love for Jesus, she's going around weeping, saying, I miss him. Where is he? How could this happen? What have they done? And she's, she's a mess. Yet she's clueless. And yet she actually, she's clueless about what's happening, as well as the other disciples. Because it still has not come into their mind or into their head yet what is going on. She's clueless. And actually, think of this with me. Actually, she has, a, she has a too small of a view of who Jesus is, making it incredibly difficult for her to believe what's happened here. Peter, John, Mary, and the others had too small of a view of Jesus Christ. And God, through the sovereign plan, through the crucifixion, and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was addressing these concepts, these two small. He was, she was looking for a dead Jesus. Where have you laid his body? In her mind, he's dead. Where have you put the body? Because this is the way we think. We think natural conclusions about things. Well, the body's gone. He's still dead. Where is he? The ultimate plan of God goes so far beyond anything that we could even ask or think. She is looking for a human. Only Jesus, and this is, so, this is so amazing. We see two things about his things that Jesus says to Mary. Number one, look how gentle Jesus is to Mary. It's amazing. I just love how gentle he is. He comes up and he says to her, why are you crying? <laughs> These are really some of the first recorded words of Jesus. The resurrected Jesus Christ is saying, why are you crying? And it wasn't like, why are you crying? But it was, why are you crying? It was, it was gentleness. It was compassion. It was understanding. Why are you crying? And then he says, who are you looking for? Because he understands that the best thing to do, instead of questioning her unbelief, he asks her questions. And get this, this is an important point. He gets her to own it from the inside and not just have it imposed on her from the outside. Jesus, and this is, a, this is a point I want to make here. Jesus wants her to understand, for her to own what's going on, to see what's happening by asking her questions and having her understand through the Holy Spirit speaking to her and not something that he's imposing on her from the outside. For example, Jesus could have walked up to Mary and seen her emotion and her stress and unbelief. And I think that when we see people in that state, when we see someone disappointed or in a, in a, in a state of distress or, or, or pain, it kind of unsettles us. and We really don't know what to say. So what we do is, is we go into logic mode, don't we? Jesus could have walked up and said, Mary, it's me. It's me, Mary. What's the problem? Don't you understand? And I think that that would have been imposing on the outside of Mary who Jesus was. But Jesus says, Mary. And what, what happens next? We see here that Mary, the discussion that Jesus has with Mary, is that human faith, that faith, resurrection faith, is humanly impossible. We see the apostles, the disciples, the whole world, nobody is really getting it that Jesus rose from the dead. And that Jesus has to leave evidence in the tomb, and he has to go to Mary and show himself to Mary so that there is some kind of understanding that this is where faith begins. Faith begins for Mary when she sees Jesus. Faith does not begin through some type of emotional or some will decision, but it's something that Jesus is revealing 
to the disciples. And it's interesting to me that Mary is the first person, is the first living person to have a conversation with a resurrected Savior. Who is Mary Magdalene? Who is she? Well, she's got quite a resume. Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, she has seven demons. She was demon-possessed. <laughs> seven demons. And not just two or three, but seven. And number seven speaks of a host of demons. She was completely demon-possessed. And what was a demon-possessed person? That, what was a person that was demon-possessed look like? Matthew, Mark chapter 5, you see the guy. there was a guy who was demon-possessed. He's running around crazy, not properly dressed, and he's talking to himself, crying out. This is what Mary was like before she met Jesus. She was a social outcast. She was alone, and she was not accepted, and she was really the bottom of society. Yet this, <laughs> in the deliberate wisdom of Jesus Christ, and in the wisdom of God, is the first person that Jesus decides, that Jesus determines to appear to. Now, at that point, we would have to ask Jesus about his PR campaign. Jesus, is this, are you sure this is we, the way we want to kick off a new religion? Jesus goes to Mary, and Mary, is, he says to a woman, I'm giving you the gospel. Now go tell it to everybody. <laughs> go tell the apostles. Go tell the, she is the first ambassador. What does this tell us? It tells us this so vividly and so powerfully and so clearly that, that our salvation and that our calling and that the work of God in our life is not based on anything that we could ever do. It's not based on our discipleship energy. It's not based on, on a religious works, but it's based on the, on the pure grace and the mercy of God. And this is, this is the basis of the whole plan of God in our life, is that God allows certain circumstances to trouble us, okay? To bring us to a point of just like great turbulence in our soul, to the point where we are like the disciples. We're trying to wrap our, heart, our minds and our hearts around it, and, and the pain has been reactivated by, by, the, by the tomb being empty. And, and God allows this because... There is a process that God wants us to go through in the word of God and through the evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. Ask God these questions. Ask the word of God questions. And you know something? Jesus, God, answers these questions. And lastly, I want to close with this. The, 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 the resurrection is, it is so intensely rational. It is so, it is so, um, it is so, uh, so merciful, and, 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 and at, the, at the same time, it's so personal. It's intensely personal. And this is beautiful. Look how Jesus reveals himself to, to Mary in the end. He just says her name. He just says her name. And I, I just think about that for a minute. We live in a culture that is so obsessed with identity. We live in a culture that is so obsessed with who you are and who you're making yourself to be. There's never been a culture like this before that's been so identity-oriented. And, and we see this here with Mary, that Jesus comes and he just says her name. We live in a culture that says, what you need to do is look inside yourself and decide who you are and then take that and assert it 
no matter what anybody else thinks of you, right? Just assert that because you're deciding who you are and you're going to do it no matter what anybody says. And you will assert yourself. But this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Why? Because God has made us sociable creatures. He's made us people that need relationship. We need two-way relationship with God. And this is the resurrection message right here. A two-way relationship between Jesus speaking to Mary, Mary speaking to Jesus. This blows the concepts of Christianity out, 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 the win- out the window because church service is not where we come and serve God. It's a place where God is coming and he's serving us. He's watching, he's washing our feet. He's ministering to us. He's speaking to us. And this is what it's all about. We need someone to, this is the way I look at it. We need someone that we adore to adore us. We need someone that we respect to respect us. We need someone who is on the outside that we can't find or that we can't reach who we love to love us. And then when that happens, we have a security in relationship that can't be shaken. We have this security. And this is what's happening in this story with Jesus and Mary. Jesus is saying to Mary, I am the ultimate great person in the universe. And I love you personally and expensively. I love you personally and expensively. I love you personally and expensively. And then we see at this moment that that Mary grabs Jesus. Imagine the scene. Like she literally grabs him. She just hugs him and is holding him so tight. And I think that when we read this scripture here, us people that just enjoy the theological, like, okay, why is he saying, you know, don't hold me so tight? Is what is happening? Is it this? Is this? Is this in relationship to him taking the blood to the mercy seat? And you know, how does this all work? And I think it's. I think I have a new theory about this, and I think it can be theologically backed up. Is that she grabs him? It literally says in the Greek, "Just don't hold me so tight." And he's saying this because, and he, and he goes on. He says, "Mary, I can see that you. I can see. I can understand why you are grabbing me so hard." You're afraid of losing me. But I want you to know I'm about to go to heaven and I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in my place. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you will have me forever. Isn't that beautiful? And you'll have a sense of my love in Romans chapter 5 even deeper than what you have right now. And even the deepest dungeon, Mary, in your life will not be able to separate me from you or you from me. He's just saying, Mary, understand that you've lost me, that you've lost something. And now I am leaving again, but I'm not leaving. I'm sending a, the spirit that the Holy Spirit will be closer to you than I can ever be to you. The Holy Spirit. And I want to finish with this. The Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is closer to us than anyone could ever be in our life. The Holy Spirit is closer to us than our closest friend. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of grace is closer to us. The the Spirit of God, which is not a spirit of this world, is closer to us than anyone could ever be. And let's go a step farther. The Holy Spirit is closer to us 
than, than we are to ourselves. The Holy Spirit is closer to us than our soul is to us as a identity. Does that make sense? Yeah. The Holy Spirit is closer to you than your fallen nature is to you. Jesus is closer to us than anything that could ever be close to us. And that's why when Jesus said to Mary, Mary, just had to say that word Mary, when he said that, she understood the nearness of Christ in her life that that she wasn't going to have to go through separation anxiety again. We all go through it. We, we all experience What do men do? We just go to our house, like Peter and John. They just went to their house. We just, go to our, we just go to our zone that we can control and that we can understand, that we can predict, right? right. Mary is just standing there crying. Just, she's overwhelmed. And then Jesus says, Mary, I'm here. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then Mary understands her identity. You know, we don't have to carve out our identity by looking inside of ourselves and discovering our own heart and what we want to do. Because that heart is deceitfully wicked and it will, just, it will betray us. It will deceive us. We don't, need to, we don't need to intent and we don't need to determine and to, and to push what we think we should be. Because when we know Jesus Christ, when we meet Jesus Christ, we understand who we are. We understand who we are as a, crea- as a creature. Be careful. And I just want to say one practical thing. Be careful how you build your life. Be careful, how, be careful what ladder you're climbing because we all have met people in the latter years of their life that have gotten to the top of the ladder and they realize that I'm, my ladder was on the wrong building and they are now in a place of crisis. I just want to say that Jesus, when we put, his, when we put our faith in his death and resurrection and when we trust him for our salvation, he comes into our life and he tells us who he is and we begin to learn who we are. We need evidence and it's okay to ask questions. And if there are questions, ask them. He's leaving, he's left evidence for us and that evidence is for us to build our faith upon. I think that there are young people today, I meet them all the time, 17, 18 year olds, they just say, you know, I, I went to church, I went to, I went to, you know, I went, to, I went to, to class, I did all of these things, and then as soon as I graduated, I, uh, I left. It's because they didn't understand. They, 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 they said that I cannot ask questions. And, and when, when, they, when they hear that, that they can't ask any questions, then they, they are not allowed to discover the evidence of the resurrection and to understand the evidence of the Holy Spirit that speaks to us deeply and personally and expensively. Amen.